people do sometimes respond poorly in trauma and they may respond in emotionally abusive ways. But the more important thing is this, is this a consistent pattern and is this something they're not seeking help for? So it's just me today, and this is a sensitive episode, and yeah, I just want to give some trigger warnings for anybody who has been through abuse. We're going to talk about abuse today, specifically emotional abuse, so we're not going to necessarily get into the nitty-gritty of domestic violence, but we are going to talk about emotional abuse, and um, if you're listening right now and you're like, I don't know much about that, or that's not me, I've never had that in my life, you need to listen to this too. Because a huge part of this process is, A, if it's never happened to you, being prepared for if it ever was to happen and knowing how to spot it. And B, being able to be educated, to be able to support your friends or people that you may know who might be going through abuse. So, you know, if you've never heard my story of abuse, that is on the podcast. And you can go back a few years ago to hear that full story. Um, I actually re-recorded it, I remember, because I had originally left out a detail that I used to be really ashamed about, which was about me being in the psych ward. And I re-recorded it and added that detail in. And so I think that episode came out about three years ago. So what is it? 2023, probably 2020. You know what? It came out in 2019. So four years ago. <laughs> but I highly encourage y'all to go back and listen to my story um, if it if it interests you. But I'm going to give a brief synopsis of the biggest emotionally and physically abusive relationship I was in. And then I want to talk about emotional abuse um, because it is a red flag and we're in a season on red flag, red flags. And it is a red flag. It's a major red flag. But emotional abuse isn't always outright very obvious, which is why you end up getting sucked in. It's kind of like if you've heard this analogy, if you throw a frog into a pot of a boiling water, it will jump out because it's really hot. But if you put a frog into a pot of lukewarm water and just slowly turn up the temperature, eventually the frog will like die because it has it, it doesn't notice. It gets used to the hotter and hotter and hotter temperature until eventually it's like too hot for it, but it doesn't even know. So that's kind of like emotional abuse. The abuse cycle starts very subtly and typically abuse of any kind, like including domestic abuse, domestic violence can and often does start with emotional abuse. Almost always it starts with emotional abuse. So it's so important to know about what emotional abuse is. I just want to say all abuse is horrific. There's multiple different kinds. There's physical abuse, sexual abuse, verbal abuse which also is similar to emotional abuse. And all of that kind of, any of those kinds of abuse can imprint a painful trauma in your memory. So I want to say this, when you when you say abuse, usually first people think of like domestic violence, right? But emotional abuse is very real and even more common than domestic violence. 
It can be very hard to spot, like I just said, because it's usually slow and steady. And like I also just said, it is the foundation for other forms of abuse. Often what happens through time is that emotional abuse through time is used to erode a person's self-esteem and their self-worth and create a sort of psychological dependency on the abusive partner. So I'm going to define emotional abuse and tell you guys exactly what it is. Emotional abuse includes non-physical behaviors that are meant to control, isolate, or frighten you. Some examples include threats, insults, constant monitoring of you, excessive jealousy, manipulation, humiliation, intimidation, dismissiveness, among other things. Sometimes emotional abuse is more obvious, like things like a partner yelling at you or calling you names, but sometimes it is a lot more subtle. Acting jealous of your friends or not wanting you to hang out with certain people, especially if there's people of the opposite gender there. While these emotionally abusive behaviors don't leave physical marks, they do through time hurt you, they disempower you, and they traumatize the person that is experiencing the emotional abuse. And like I said, the problem with these things over time is that it wears you down and you start to question yourself. You start to lose confidence. You start to feel diminished in your self-worth. And it really, really, really sets you into moves you into a different place. So I want to go back really quick before I go on and tell you that years ago, when I had just gotten out of college, I got into a relationship with a guy. And I was with this guy for about two and a half years. And uh, again, go back and listen to that episode to uh, uh, four years ago to hear my full story of abuse. But the thing about it was the relationship was emotionally, it began emotionally abusive. And it was emotionally abusive for about a year and a half before any physical abuse started, physical and sexual abuse. Um, and so the, phys- the emotional bu- abuse, though, started very early on with gaslighting. Started with me going to a bar with him and I would go to the bathroom and then I would come back and he would be at the bar talking to other girls, flirting with girls. I would notice this and I would be like, hey, what are you doing? And I I would literally come up and he would be like, oh, hey, Kate, and give me a high five. What's up, buddy? And I was like, what? (laughs) Like, I'm this person's girlfriend. And now they're acting like I'm not their girlfriend. And they want to act cool because they don't want to act like they're in a relationship with me. This pattern actually of not wanting to act like he was in a relationship with me was consistent throughout our relationship. And it drove me wild because I'm like, we're in a relationship and he was like, why are you so insecure? Like, yeah, I am with you, but why Why do I have to have do all this PDA in public? Like, you're so insecure acting crazy. Or I'd say, hey, you're flirting with that girl. And he'd be like, no, I'm not. You're being overly dramatic. Like, what are you even talking about? And then he would deflect, you know, and I will never forget this one time. Like I, once I was in a relationship, like I was pretty committed to that person. And so he would deflect and say, well, I saw you talking to this guy that night, tonight. And I'm like, this is like our mutual friend that we came here with. What are you talking about? This isn't like a strange guy. This is like just our friend that we are, came with. He's like, yeah, but you're talking to a guy and I can't talk to girls. Like you, you can have bad intentions. You can assume bad intentions of me, but you don't have bad intentions. Like that's a double standard. 
So these things were very jarring for me because I had never dealt with somebody who would blatantly be doing wrong things in front of my face and then blaming me and making me feel like I made it all up, like I was crazy. And this went on for a very long time, you guys. It was so hard. So also, this is all, this is it can be called gaslighting. Okay, so gaslighting is in essence a tactic where that is often in emotionally abusive relationships where your partner flips the script on you and makes something that is blatantly their fault now suddenly your fault. And the problem with gaslighting is that it is very confusing and disorienting. Like you, you know in your mind that you're right, but then they're flipping it on you and like pointing, deflecting to all these other things. And they're, they're calling you emotional. They're calling you dramatic. They're calling you, they're saying that you're overreacting and you're like, wait, what am I? And so the first time you might think like, okay, you're actually being like super rude. You're being crazy. But over time repeated using this pattern, it wears down on you, wears down on your self-worth. It confuses you and you start potentially believing that these things might be true. Maybe I am, you know, being overdramatic. In private, he's like so committed to me in private. He is so sweet to me. And I, maybe I'm just like being like too sensitive. And so like what seems obvious ends up not being obvious through time. And if you couple that with you come into a relationship already with a sense of low self-esteem or a, like a confidence that isn't fully solid in the Lord, then in, if you believe lies about yourself, significant lies about yourself, when someone calls out these things about you, then it it is easier for them to feel true. For example, I was always told growing up that I was too dramatic, too emotional, and too loud. And so... Those are messages I got constantly as a kid. And so this guy is now reinforcing those messages that I believed about myself and heard as a child. And those things that I kind of in the back of my mind always believed were true, he was revalidating. And so I'm like, well, maybe he's right. Like I have been called too dramatic and emotional and, you know, too sensitive. So maybe I am being those things. Now I got to a place where like literally this guy cheated on me emotionally and physically with many girls. And it came to the point where even when I had evidence, which I found evidence, because if you get really badly into these relationships, you like, you start doing things you never thought you would do. Like I would stalk his Instagram. It was very, Instagram was new at the time. I would stalk, like, I would really try to be a detective and figure out who he was talking to and all these things. And I would find details and y'all, I would find it or I'd hack into his phone not hack. I would steal his phone and look at his messages. And I would lock myself in the bathroom. Meanwhile, he's pounding on the door and I'm like reading through his messages. Something I had never done before. Like I've never taken to this point, ever taken JJ's phone and looked at his phone. And I had never done that with another guy. But this guy, I did because of so much gaslighting. I felt like I need to prove that I'm not crazy. I need to prove that I'm not crazy. And then you guys, I would find the evidence and I would show him the blatant evidence. Here's the girl you're flirting with. Here's the girl you're sending pictures to. And he would literally be like, that? You're worried about that? Are you really that insecure? And comments like that. And I'm like, what? And so that kind of thing happened all of the time for a year and a half um, until it became, you know, domestic violence and sexual violence. So 
I want to give you some red flags of emotional abuse because usually it doesn't start right away. It might start subtly. This is also why I recommend dating people for 90 days and not rushing into a relationship because you want to really see their character through time. And people who can be emotionally abusive, they're really good at hiding this stuff, you guys, because abuse is all about power and control. And so if they want power and control over you, they're not going to show you these little sides of themselves until they actively know that they have some sort of power and control over you, which isn't going to be after one day or two days or three dates. It's going to be after a few months of them doing wonderful things, maybe love bombing you. Go back to our love bombing episode. And then after that point, they'll start adding in some of that emotional abuse. So that's why, again, don't rush into relationships and really pace it out. I recommend 60 to 90 days. I can't harp on that enough. There's so many reasons why pacing is important, but this is definitely one of them. All right, so some red flags of emotional abuse. These are all from the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which, again, is an awesome resource. And if you are listening and you are going through emotional abuse, like this line is available for you emotional abuse, domestic violence, anything of that nature, they want to help you and provide you with resources. Okay, red flags. Your partner name calls you or demeans you. Your partner tries to control you, your time, and your actions. Your partner tells you what to do and what to wear. Your partner often makes you feel silly or dumb. Your partner questions your reality and says that things that you know happened didn't happen. This is called gaslighting. This, in my opinion, is the worst of the worst tactics. It's so disorienting. Your partner is critical of your appearance. Your partner is jealous of time that you spend with your friends or your family. Your partner punishes you by withholding attention or affection. Your partner doesn't want you hanging out with someone of another gender. Your partner makes threats to hurt you or others to get what they want. That's in extreme circumstances. And of course, that won't happen until way later. Your partner wants you to ask for permission before doing something or spending time with other people. Your partner constantly monitors where you go and stalks your whereabouts. Your partner doesn't want you to work. Your partner embarrasses you in public. Your partner does not trust you and acts possessive. Your partner threatens breaking up or divorce, if you're married, to manipulate an argument. Your partner wants access to your phone, your passwords, your social media. Your partner threatens suicide during arguments. Your partner is constantly accusing you of cheating. Your partner blames you for their unhealthy and abusive behaviors. Your partner makes you feel guilty or immature for not wanting to have sex. Your partner overloads you with compliments and gifts and then uses that to manipulate you later, aka love bombing, which we talked all about this season. So One of those tactics, any one of those tactics is emotional abuse. Now, I want to make a quick caveat here because if somebody does one of these things on a singular occasion, that does not mean, oh my gosh, they're emotionally abusive and I have to like leave them right away. You need to watch for these patterns and know that people with trauma may lash out in emotionally abusive ways, but that may be like a momentary thing and it might not be a consistent thing. For example, I say that as a person who has dealt with a lot of trauma and I look at this list and I'm like, I have done at least one or two of these things to JJ at some point. And yet 
after it's happened, I've been like, okay, hey, babe, that was really wrong of me. And I was acting out of trauma. And I'm really sorry I made you feel that way or said those things or tried to control you in that way. And I genuinely believed it. I genuinely not believed it. I genuinely meant the apology and actively took steps to work on myself. Okay. Because yes, an abuser can fake apologize. And I'll talk about the abuse cycle. But I just want to say that because I as I want to educate you guys on emotional abuse, I also want to say, like, if you see one of these things, it's not necessarily your sign to like run away right away, unless they are domestically violent right away. But if you see one of these things, hmm, this isn't great. I don't love that. Let me talk to them about it calmly. And let me see how they respond. And let me see if they actually do change these things. And so because right now there's so many hot button topics, gaslighting is a hot button word, button word, narcissism is a hot button word. And I do think we are really quick to put these labels on people and say, he's a gaslighter, they're a gaslighter, they're a narcissist. And then we walk away from them. And I also just want to say, Yes, have awareness, but don't eliminate people without the full picture because nobody is perfect. So it is the both and. And I'm saying that as a person who has been through a lot of different kinds of abuse and would never want to go through that again, obviously. But also there people do sometimes respond poorly in trauma and they may respond in emotionally abusive ways. But the more important thing is this, is this a consistent pattern and is this something they're not seeking help for? Okay. A big question that people have about emotional abuse is why do people stay? It's the same question people ask with domestic violence. The reasons why somebody stays in an emotionally abusive relationship is very, very, very complex. And so I'm going to explain or try to explain why. And first, I'll lead with my story in that I did try to leave my abuser for multiple times. Um, it is said by the National Domestic Violence Hotline that somebody, that a victim will try to leave their abuser uh, at minimum seven times. Minimum. For me, it was way more than seven times. I tried to leave I would say upwards of 30 times, if I'm being honest. There were lots of little breakups, lots of me, I'm going to leave. I'm finally going to leave. And then got back into it. And I'll tell you, a lot of people in my life, which we'll get to in a minute, did not understand why I could keep going back. And they started thinking, I'm crazy. And they were like, she needs help. She's crazy. And they started thinking I'm more crazy than the guy is because they're seeing that I keep going back and like, okay, if he's that bad... Why are you keep going back to him? Like you're kind of acting crazy. And I was like consumed by it, you guys. I, it was like all I could think about. It was, it consumed my mind. I couldn't even be present. And so I want to talk about in a second how you as a friend or family member can support someone going through abuse, especially emotionally abuse in this way, because the worst thing you can do is make them feel horrible for continuing to go back because you will not logically understand why. You, as a rational person not in that situation, will not be able to understand why. And even the person in it probably feels a lot of shame. So let, let me talk about why somebody stays. First, like they, a person may feel like people won't really believe me if they really knew all the information. They're not going to believe me. So they often stay because they, because like, for example, my abuser convinced me I was crazy through time. And you guys, there's like, I'll just use this big example. So 
one night I spent in the psych ward while we were together and he actually made sure that happened and he made sure to not call the hospital and tell them that I wasn't crazy and all these things so that I would actually have to spend a night in the psych ward and it was horrible. We're one of the worst nights of my life, truly. Like it took me so long to not have so much shame about that night, to be able to voice that that happened to me. It was the most horrendous experience. And this was before um, physical abuse started. But after this night in the psych ward, the physical abuse started about a month and a half later. And I actually got a restraining order on him. And after that restraining order, what happened was I didn't stop fully being in contact with him because again, I'm in the abuse cycle for like almost two years now. And I was very, very locked in in it. And throughout those months, he kept referencing that I was in the psych ward and I'm crazy. And I made everything up that he would never do those things that I probably inflicted those marks upon myself And like, you were in the psych ward, you were in the psych ward. It kept coming up. You were in the psych ward. You're crazy, Kate. Like you literally are crazy. Like, remember you spent a night there. You're crazy. And so like I started believing like people aren't going to believe me. Like maybe I am crazy. Like if he, if like, I literally was like, I I don't know if I can tell more people, anybody else about this because like, they're not going to believe me. And so I'm telling you the things an abuser will do to keep you locked in with them. You cannot even begin to understand the kind of psychological impact it has on somebody or why they would keep going back to something that is horrible for them. But I like to equate it to be having a drug addiction. Um, An addict knows this thing is not good for them. The substance is not good for them and it could kill me, but they keep going back. And to an outside person who is not an addict, it makes no sense. Why would they keep going back? Why would they keep going back? This is so bad for them. They keep destroying relationships. This is so bad for them. It doesn't make any sense for somebody who is not the addict. Like you look at their life and you're like, I don't get this. But for the addict, it makes sense because you hate this thing, but you're stuck in the cycle. Okay. Another reason um, somebody might stay in an emotionally abusive relationship is because, um, they have built this reality in their mind that the their abuser will follow through on the threats that they have stated to them. And those threats keep them trapped because enough manipulation, enough threats, you're starting to freak out. This person all the, has all the power over you and you believe that they are capable of those things. Threats like that they're going to hurt you or expose things about you or let alone kill people in your life, which it could come to that. It could come to them saying that. I mean, they could threaten to like expose you at your job and get you fired from your job. They can threaten to ruin you financially. They can threaten so many things. And some of it, it, so much of it is empty threats, right? Are they really going to do those things? Maybe, maybe not. Um, Probably not, but you don't, you don't know. You don't know. And I got threatened so many times, so many times. And I even got threatened in future relationships, emotionally threatened um, and blackmailed. And it is the worst feeling. It is the worst feeling. They also, as a victim, you also typically know your abuser very well. And you 
fear that you may not be able to safely escape because you know them very well, you know their tactics. And something I do want to just say here is that 20% of homicide victims are not even the domestic violence victim themselves, but actually their families and friends and neighbors and persons who helped intervene, which I'm not saying that for the people listening so that you aren't going to support and help your friends who are in an emotionally abusive relationship. But I just am saying that it is very serious. Sometimes these abusers do follow through on things and really harm people around them. Abuse is all about power and control, like I have said. So that means that when a victim tries to leave a relationship, they threaten the hold that the abuser has over them. So if they leave, the uh, the victim knows if I try to leave, that is going to be the most dangerous period of time because that abuser is going to feel like they've lost control and they're going to go wild and do anything it takes to get me back into, to get the victim back into their control. And so you know, and sometimes you put it off, like I can't do it because like, I know they're going to go crazy. and I, I can't even imagine what they're going to do. So if you threaten their power and their control over you, you've probably done it before as an, as a victim. So you know what happens. And so if you really try to leave, you're like, I can't imagine what they would do. Um, so you may have fear, you may have shame, you may have been gaslit a lot, you may have been intimidated, you may have low self-esteem at this point, you may have a lack of resources, you may have children, um, you may just feel coerced and under their control so extensively. And all of those reasons, and many of them combined, are just some of the reasons why it's hard for a victim to leave their abuser. Real quickly, I want to explain this cycle of abuse, and this works whether it's emotional abuse or domestic violence. So first, we'll start with some kind of attack or explosion. So an attack, obviously, in domestic violence would be them physically harming you, but emotional abuse would be an explosion. Some kind of, I can't believe you did this. You are crazy. Da, 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 da. Like, how could you do this? You're so bad. Like my abuser, when it got really heightened, you guys was telling me that I was the most horrible person on the planet. He was telling me that I've destroyed his life. He was telling me that I have, I am completely worthless. I'm not attractive. I have no real reasons to live and went on and on and on and on and on of explosion. And he actually was telling me like, here are the ways I think you should kill yourself. Um, you could do this. You could jump off this bridge. You could go into the um, bathtub right now and, you know, just let yourself go underwater and suffocate and I can help you. Um, you could jump out the window. You could get one of your knives from the kitchen. Like he was like detailing out. He was like, cause you literally have no worth and value. You deserve to die. I'm sorry. I know that's really hard probably for people to hear. It's hard to even say. And I, again, that's why I used a trigger warning at the beginning, but when you hear those things, that's an explosion. And again, that is very like hard to hear and belittling. And it's like, if you already have low self-worth, like you're, you feel destroyed by that. But after the attack, what typically happens is some kind of remorse, potentially like minor remorse. If it's a really big narcissistic person, don't think that narcissistic people will not apologize. They will fake apologize if it means they're going to get power and control back over you. They will. So a lot of people think that narcissistic people, they can't apologize. Well, a narcissistic person is very smart and they will apologize <laughs> if it means they're going to get power back over you, but they don't mean their apology at all, at all. So after the explosion, there might be a possible season of remorse. 
which then moves into a, a time of honeymoon slash love bombing period, where now they're saying all the right things. Now they're take, bringing you flowers. Now they're telling you how much they love you. Now they're like, I can't believe I did that. I can't, I could never lose you. You're the best thing that ever happened to me. Like all of those things. And they're saying all the things you want to hear, you know? <laughs> and then after that, which is, it depends how long that, that might be short. It might be long. You never know. It will then eventually move into a season of tension. Like there's tension building between you. That tension is building, that tension is building. And then eventually it will lead to an attack. And in the tension, the usually things that'll happen is like, they might say, don't put, push it. Or if you loved me, you wouldn't do that. Or it's a lot of questioning, a lot of jealousy. They might withdraw from you and give you the cold shoulder. They might give you a promise and break it. Like there's going to be a lot of tension and potentially some manipulation. That's where some gaslighting might happen. That's where some blaming might happen. Like there's going to be a lot of tension of them like pointing the figure at you and kind of like little threats until eventually there's a big explosion. Um, So this pattern is incredibly confusing for the victim. There's a combination of love and affection and then physical, emotional, or verbal violence after that. And it's very disorienting. Sometimes the cycle of this can be short. Sometimes it can be long. Like I remember one night I went through this entire cycle in just a few hours with someone. It was horrible. Um, but then this could also be long lasting. Like there, the remorse and the quote unquote honeymoon period might last for like a few weeks. And then tension may last for like a few weeks until, you know, and so it could be subtle as well. It's just, I can't emphasize enough how the pattern really keeps you warped into the cycle. Now, I heard this and I read this and I think it's really fascinating. So I want to share. I want to talk biologically about why we stay with an abuser. The National Domestic Violence Hotline says that biologically speaking, the bonds we develop originate from our infantile dependence on someone else for survival. Usually, our primary caregiver or parent. So in our early years of life, survival is foundational to human attachment. When safety is threatened by some kind of trauma, we naturally turn to someone who we think is the caregiver in our life, the person who is provides safety for us in our life, someone who provides support, they provide perfect protection, they provide care. And when that kind of bonding occurs, Oxytocin is released in our brains, which then furthers comfort and attachment with that caregiver. So for example, like in, oh, I'll give an example in a second. I just thought of it, but I'll give it in a second. I got to finish this. Okay. So in adult relationships, what happens is the caregiver is often our significant other. It's no longer our parents. We've left our parents. So when we get into a relationship, we'll often get really vulnerable with our partner. And we often see our quote unquote caregiver or the person who's safest to us as our significant other. So trauma bonds occur when the person we regard as the significant other, aka our caregiver, is also the one creating trauma by threatening safety by abusive behavior. Given that we are hardwired from birth to turn to some kind of an attachment figure, we naturally turn to our romantic partner, even when they are the ones being abusive to us. 
This leads to a victim being very and feeling very bonded to their abuser. Also, uh, we just as humans have a tendency to make sense of our experiences. So as a victim, you're going to start trying to rationalize like, what's going on here? We try to rationalize the dissonance of our abusive partners harmful versus their caring behaviors. Like there's both usually. It's never just harmful behavior. The abuser will also be caring and loving in some capacity. And so we're trying to make sense of those things. That kind of rationalization will actually strengthen the bond between the victim and the abuser. So through all that gaslighting, you're like questioning, you're trying to rationalize it, and you're remembering that they're loving and caring, and that abuse cycle, that's why the love bombing part, the honeymoon part of the abuse cycle is so essential because you those are the things you want. Those make you feel safe. Those make you feel cared for. And you're trying to rationalize, well, this part of this person versus this part of this person. And it, that actually creates a bond to that person, you trying to rationalize those things. On top of that, get this, you guys abusive partners promise change typically, and then they actively tend to the wounds that they have created upon you. Precisely in the moments that you feel the most vulnerable and hurt. Can you imagine that? Like they create the wounds and then they are there to actively help you change, like tend to those wounds and care for you, even though they're the ones that created it. So this creates major trauma bonds major trauma bonds. With my partner, my abusive partner, the biggest area that they he would tend to for me was he would love bomb me. And, you know, fortunately we had sexual intimacy at this point. And this is, you know, again, many years ago, and that would keep us wired together. And it would be so quote unquote amazing. It wasn't, but like in my mind, it was at the time. And he always emphasized that it's so amazing. And that would like create this oxytocin and this bonding literally right after a traumatic experience. And so it was very, very confusing. And he kept telling me things like, you're never going to have this kind of connection with anyone else. Like this connection is so one of a kind. You're never going to find this anywhere else. And I started like believing, oh yeah, like that's like, that's true. That could be true. And so it's amazing that that's how warped it is. We look to somebody for safety, even from early years in our life. And then later it ends up being our partner. And even if that partner is abusive, even if that partner is abusive, oh, it frustrates me so much, but that this pattern exists and yet it does. And we just have to be aware to it. So I want to start talking about just briefly, like how do you leave someone who's emotionally abusive? Okay. Um, like I said, it can take an average of seven attempts for a person to finally leave an abusive partner for good. And you know, depending on how abusive the situation is, it might take a lot more. For mine, it took a lot more than that. The first thing I would encourage you to do is to ask for help. Call the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Tell a trusted friend. And within that, it's really help. It's really important to try to build a safety network. I did not have a safety network. I did not have people in my life that I felt like I could truly, truly turn to. I didn't have mentors. And a whole side story is I did not really feel supported by my church. And that really, really was a hard part of this. But I didn't have a safety network. And so when JJ and I talk about things like building a board of advisors, that is also essential for situations like this, where you might be in an abuse, emotionally abusive situation, like you need to turn to people, you need to have safe people in your life. Um, 
And you need to be able to ask them for help. People that are not going to shame you, that maybe have experience with things like this, or just who are going to be loving and caring and for you no matter what. I would also encourage you to build a and create a safety plan. When I left my abuser um, for good, I mean, it was kind of for good. There were some things after that, but I started going to a therapist, which I also recommend, and she helped me create a safety plan for if I got warped back into it again or what you know, if he just showed up one day and this is really, really, really helpful. And at first I thought this is ridiculous. I don't need to do this. And then I realized like, no, like this is necessary. Like my safety is on the line. There were multiple times like where it got to the point in my relationship where I could have died. Like this is, this is not okay. Um, when you do finally exit, you need to work on becoming fully independent. It's why I harp so much on like deeply knowing yourself and deeply loving yourself because you have to love yourself to not lose yourself. Like you have to know who you are in the Lord and like fully be able to take care of yourself outside of a relationship. And that's so important. I also want to bring in the importance of friends and people here who are listening, who maybe you've never been in an emotionally abusive relationship. This is very confusing for you. And, or maybe you've had someone that's been in this situation. You just are like, I do not get it. This frustrates me so much. First of all, I want to validate, yes, it can be hard. You may feel frustrated. You may feel angry. You may want to give up on your per this person entirely. They may be acting completely irrational. They may be even being a bad friend. Most likely they are being a bad friend to you. But I want you to also know that if you are a trusted friend to this person, you can play a crucial role in empowering the victim to stay safe or to even leave for good. Now, it's not going to be up to you, right? It's going to be up to them, but you can play a powerful role in supporting them and creating safe space for them and making them not feel crazy. And so how can you do that? First of all, you need to educate yourself. And this podcast is a great place to start. Looking on the National Domestic Violence Hotline website is an awesome place to start. It talks about emotional abuse, domestic violence, like so many things. It's a great place to educate yourself. And then you want to directly go to your friend or whoever this person is and, and, and very kindly let them know you're concerned for them. You, you need to know, though, that if you do that, they may not want to talk to you. They may even defend that person because they also may feel like a lot of shame, a lot of shame. And remember, there's a lot of like cognitive like confusion going on. So they, they may be in a season where this person's love bombing them and they feel amazing. <laughs> um, and therefore, they might depend on this person because they're still trying to rationalize the, the bad behavior with the good behavior. And they don't really know what to make of it all. So even if they defend them, even if they don't really want to talk to you, try as best as you can to be open and supportive. Let them know that they're not crazy. Let them know that they're not alone. Let them know that you are there for them and let them know those things as many times as is necessary. Another thing you could do is help them and encourage them to take small steps, even that if that's just to seek with a counselor, because a step of like going to the police or like leaving them for good might be way too big of a step. If you just say you need to leave them, like that's potentially a very, up, it's going to be way too overwhelming and then they're not going to feel like they can trust you. So I would encourage them to just take a small step. I think you should speak to a counselor. Maybe you should talk to the domestic violence hotline. 
maybe encourage them to create a safety plan. You need to start small with them. If you start big and dramatic, like it's, they're going to probably not want to confide in you anymore. But the worst thing you can do is just completely turn away from them or call them crazy or tell them that they're dramatic. And I don't blame my friends in the season because they truly didn't understand about emotional abuse. But I will say, like, I didn't have friends that truly understood. I didn't have friends that were consistent or supportive of me. I had friends that instead were like, you're being crazy. Like, you keep going back to him and you complete com- keep complaining about it. Like, haven't you learned your lesson? Like, why would you keep doing this? And yeah, it just made me feel worse and worse and worse. I did not have literally anyone that I felt I could talk to. And as much as I love my family and I do love my family, they were so upset by this that like some of them stopped talking to me for multiple months because they couldn't believe that after the restraining order and everything that I would go back to them, back to this guy, which I did, by the way. And so, and that was like really hard and painful because I know they were dealing it with it the best they could, but having no support, like them doing that just made me reconfirm that I am crazy. (laughs) Like all these lies, like it just reconfirmed that. Right. Um, but also I want to say if you have a friend or a family member that's being abused, like just know that secondary trauma is very real and you also need to protect and take care of yourself and get help for yourself. Um, because you, the last thing you want is a codependent relationship to develop where you are trying to help them so much that your value is attached to whether or not they get help. And so you need to take care of yourself just as much. You guys, this is such a real subject and I, I just really wanted to talk about it because I couldn't not in the season of red flags. It's like, we have to talk about this. Um, We've talked about abuse, but we haven't talked about emotional abuse at length. And it's so necessary. So some takeaways are, if someone shows you a red flag of emotional abuse, don't fully write them off. Get curious. Don't just label them as an abuser. But you want to see, do they consistently make change? Like, do they actually change that thing consistently? You also want to date someone for 60 to 90 days before you get into a relationship with them. I can't harp on that enough. The person I dated who was abusive worked at a church, a very prominent church, no less. So this doesn't just happen with people that are lukewarm Christians or people who don't go to church. This happens within the church too, okay? People in church still have trauma that are unre- that's unresolved, Okay. If you're a friend, offer support, offer love to that person, um, non-judgmental support and love, and also simultaneously take care of yourself. I hope this helped you guys. I hoped it made you feel validated if this is something you're going through. And just know that like, I have such a big heart for you if this is something you have gone through. Um, like I could sit here and like cry because I just think about all those times I was emotionally abused and how disorientating disorienting it feels and how confusing and how I felt like nobody understood me. And I just want you to know if that's you, like I understand you and I feel you and you are not alone. And this is not what God wants for you. And God does not look at you with any disdain. He does not look at you and think that you are less than. He doesn't withhold love from you. He loves you just as much. And there is a way out of this. There is a way out of this. There is a way safely out of this. 
Okay, friend, I love you. And we'll see you next time. Bye. The Heart of Dating podcast is created by Kate and JJ Tomlin. Shout out to our epic audio and video editor, Scott Caro. We have an amazing Heart of Dating team who helps bring the show to you each week. I want to shout out Kelsey Napier, our Heart of Dating digital marketing coordinator, and Elena Gibson, our brand and community manager. We couldn't do it without them. Now, if you guys have never ranked us or reviewed us on iTunes or Spotify, would you consider doing that? It would mean so much because our podcast can get more discovered and more people can learn how to better date as Christians. Don't we all want that? We launch our podcast each and every week on Wednesdays. So we will see you next week.